Uh, I'd just like us all to take a moment to proudly acknowledge the traditional custodians of the people of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to extend that acknowledgement to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people tonight at the Seymour Centre. We're very honoured to share this space with Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to talk about the best thing in the world, which is hip-hop. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm having a blast. Uh, my name's Ryan. Uh, you can call me Dobby. I'm a rapper and an Indigenous person myself. Um, I'm a proud black fella connected to the Murrawari Republic and the Nyamba people of Brewarrina, Northwest and New South Wales. And if anyone knows where Brewarrina is, thank you. If anyone knows where Brewarrina is, it's uh, close to Dubbo. And if anyone actually knows where Brewarrina or Dubbo is, they know that it's really not that close to Dubbo. <laughs> Let me start off with some facts that are irrelevant. Dealing with it ever since the European settlement. I am Aboriginal and Filipino heritage. Complaints about my visual, I hear them always telling it. Talking to a couple while I'm waiting at the bus line. Asking what am I because I'm not black but not white. I'm indigenous. I left it at that. She's like, you're surely not an abo. I don't think it would be much, right? What's your idea of my skin or my appearance? Because I'm not your typical black fella. Should I conceal it? You don't see it? I should bowl, say goodbye, Felicia. Why is my bloodline defined by white people? Since like preschool, I had it in my head. Black people aren't around. A lot of them dead. Right through high school and history, nothing was said. I learned about the massacres myself and something I read. Way before I was alive to a different time, discrimination was alive. You could see the signs. Still, we've come a long way. Still, it isn't right. All of us are products of assimilated genocide. It's a little hard to understand, isn't it? That's how difficult settler colonialism is. It's a timeless history we are living in, and with your very mind, this just might be different. I come here as one because of the beat of the drum. We come here as one from the lungs to the tongue. Thalin Jingo Balibutharan. Thank you very much. And we've got a lot more of that coming up. My name's Omi Tafigian. I'd just like to thank everyone for coming out tonight. This is really inspiring. I'd like to thank the National Centre for Cultural Competence, Sydney Ideas, the Religion, State and Society Research Network, and the Autonomous Collective Against Racism, based here at University of Sydney. Also, I'd just like to thank the traditional custodians of the land, and the elders, past and present, for giving me the opportunity to be here on this country. Thank you for allowing me to grow and learn. Now, I'm going to take, I'm going to step off the stage because there's someone who has some really important things to talk to you about tonight. Before we get stuck into the panels, I'd like to invite Uncle Ken Canning. Everyone, welcome, Uncle Ken. Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you very much, and uh, yeah, it is a pleasure to be here. Even at 64, I like rap and hip-hop. Uh, there's people who've known me for a while know that I'm actually a writer. I do poetry. And I just want to, before I introduce what's happening tomorrow, I sort of reminisce about performance. When we were first writing poetry in the late 80s, Uncle Norm Newell and myself, and uh, it was Kerry Reed Gilbert, I got a photo of Anita Heiss and 
Nobody was performing poetry, none of our people. We were writing poetry, but we weren't performing. Now, as Uncle Norm went to a, well, we went to a poet's night in Glebe one night. Glebe was the centre, hub of poetry. Every pub, every cafe had performances. And he went there one night and he said, uh, why aren't there any blackfellas on the, um, on the uh, agenda? And I said, uh, on the program. He said, well, I don't know any black writers. And he said, well, I'm here. And I said, uh, we've got an open mic if you'd like to uh, be on the open mic. He said, why would I take an F and open mic? He said, I'm a professional writer, just as good as any white person up there. With that, he got on the stage and started reciting, and then he took over the role of MC and introduced me. So, <laughs> virtually, virtually invaded the stage. And it's an act of defiance, which I see running through rap, which I see running through hip-hop, that politicisation. And what we did with poetry in those days was politicise people. We politicised them through the spoken word. It was a little bit difficult then. There was a lot of times where we appeared at venues and they pulled the plug on the sound system because well, they thought our stuff was too confronting for that era. Uh, a few years later, they thought we were very respectable. So yeah, it's, it's actually weird when... At one, one time, they're sort of jeering you because you're too confrontational, and then a few years later, the same audience is going, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, it was a funny little ride, that. But coming out of that, you see all this performance coming on. You, see, you, you get alive. You get alive when you see young performers getting up and turning uh, the spoken word into music, turning into an art form, turning into an expression, and turning it into a, a mechanism of decolonisation which is something we all need to have a serious look at. Now, um, I've talked enough about that tomorrow. What we've got on tomorrow is a very important event. Tomorrow, for those of you who don't know, is International Human Rights Day. An organisation called FIRE, fighting, um, fighting, or oh, something, <laughs> resist, fighting, fighting in resistance equity. Yes, I'm good. Um, uh, anyway, uh, we've got it there tomorrow, 1pm at Customs House. Now, all groups who are oppressed are joining in with us. So it started off as, you know, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people leading the way, but we've got all groups coming together. And I see it as the start as a, of a very, very big thing because our government is hammering. If you look at the internet... Uh, the uh, Human Rights Commission, which is a toothless tiger anyway, they've hammered Australia about its treatment of Indigenous peoples, its treatment of refugees, its treatment of the environment and its treatment of people with disabilities. The four most vulnerable uh, uh, groups or um, with the environment, the four most vulnerable groups in the whole country are being hammered by this racist and fascist government. Now, instead of fighting separate battles here, here and here. It's about time we all got together and we all got stuck into this government and we fought back. And we have to fight back hard. We cannot afford to sit down any longer and say, look, you lot fight over there, we'll fight our battle over here. No, we've got to get out in numbers and we've got to get out on the streets and we've got to scream at this government our human rights. And that's what it's all about because those four groups that I just talked about any government that would target those four groups are the most cowardly government on this planet. 
And that's the cowardice that we've got to stand up and fight, and you cannot be afraid of cowards. So I hope everybody can come to Customs House tomorrow. If we don't make it on the bridge, we're going to make a noise all through the city. Thank you. Oh, by the way, uh, here I go again. Hello, John. How you going, brother? <laughs> um, I was lucky to make it tonight too. Evelyn and Bubbly knows this. They, they know what happened to me before I got here tonight. I um, fell off a 30-foot ladder. Yeah, and I was very lucky. But what the fortune part was, I was on the bottom rung when I fell. Uh, <laughs> so here's, uh, here's Frank for you. Good on you, my brother. Haven't seen you for a while. Yeah. There you go. Thanks, Uncle Ken. So without uh, much further ado, guys, we're going to uh, start our first panel. Um, I guess I'll introduce myself. I'm uh, Frank. I've uh, been involved in hip-hop for a, a little while now and also host the Indige Hip-Hop show on uh, Koori Radio. So I'm going to invite out the panellists, uh, Tasman Keith, who you all may know, Queen G, Kaya, and uh, last but not least, Akala. So, uh, my first question, Akala, you've come the furthest to be here. I wanted to ask you a question, man, about uh, hip-hop and, and cultural identity. Do you think that hip-hop has uh, helped, I guess, strengthen your own cultural identity? Oh, a, a million percent. I think um, in so many ways, hip-hop changed me as an individual. And I think the collective consciousness of, first of all, black people in the Americas, and then globally, and then hip-hop heads full stop. I think there's a consciousness and an understanding of what it means to be hip-hop, or at least I, I hope there is among certain people. So to give a couple personal examples, the first person I ever saw give a lecture, like a history lecture, was KRS-One. Ah. Yeah. So what does that do to you, like, as a young person? My, my stepdad was the stage manager of London's leading uh, Black Caribbean theatre in the 80s when I grew up. I saw Angela Davis speak there. But the first person I saw give a lecture about history was KRS-One. So for me, the idea that rap that hip-hop was about spreading intelligence wasn't controversial or strange. In fact, the MTV bullshit was what was strange to me when it came, because I encountered hip-hop uh, that way. Or when I was 13 and Wu-Tang Forever came out, I went to the dictionary, because I didn't know what cometh and benevolent meant at that age. And I think that hip-hop really just defined or gave us, in the way that reggae did for my parents' generation, hip-hop really gave us an identity, gave us something to cling on to, gave us almost like a direction and a, and a sense of self. So yeah, absolutely, it was integral to building an alternate identity to the one the dominant society was trying to project onto us. Yeah, man, thanks. So, Tasman, um, as, as a young Kuri, have, have, have you found uh, the same thing with uh, hip-hop and, and your identity? Yeah, for sure, because like you see, when where I'm from, Barrowville, they stopped initiations through my great-great-grandfather, Pudgy Buchanan. So we've never been able to really become men in that sense. You know what I mean? So music for us is a real modern-day culture, like, and that's how we connect to our people at the moment, whether it's you know, through the struggles or through the good times we have. We can't go out and do corroborates anymore because they cancelled that and they didn't let you know, my great-great-grandfather teach that. So we didn't get that passed down through us, so we don't know the proper way to do the tradition. So for me, hip-hop, and like, it's really how I found myself, and I found it at a young age. I started performing when I was eight, and I like, kind of slipped off it. 
I got back to it when I was 14, like really took it serious after football and, you know, just the usual things young black men do in a small country town to try and get away from stuff. And, you know, yeah, hip-hop was really a main thing that I can express myself and not worry about what a team thinks or what anyone thinks. I can speak and say what I want to say and connect to my culture through it. Yeah, man. And uh, Queen G, uh, as, as an African Australian, you found a, a similar experience with hip-hop and cultural identity? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. When we came to Australia, we were the only um, black people, African people living where we live. So we had no connection to anyone that looked like us. So when my brothers who, you know, I give m much respect to for introducing me to hip hop, when they got um, introduced to hip hop through um, that breakdance movie that everybody's seen, um, and further on, uh, that really helped us um, I guess survive in you know the kind of areas we were growing up because people were getting into hip hop. But the unfortunate thing, which we thought was good at the time, is because we were the only Africans there, they stereotyped us and they liked us because we, to them, were the closest looking thing to the rappers that they're or the you know the <laughs> culture that they're into. So that part wasn't the most positive. But just being able to see other people that look like you and. Um, yeah, that was very supportive and, and, and helped us a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that when other people took it on and how they perceived you and, and all that, because I know where I grew up in the country, as soon as, yeah, the N-word became cool, white kids stopped calling us that. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, two, I used to tell them Tupac's my cousin and you know, everyone yeah. wanted to be my friend. Kaya, uh, I guess from a, you know, uh, you, you have a very, uh, I guess, academic view on this. What, what's your take on how, uh, how hip-hop culture can, can influence uh, cultural identity or strengthen cultural identity? Um, for me, uh, being a black woman, um, I think hip-hop becomes central because traditionally it was about black male masculinities. So coming out of my own position as a black woman it was directly interconnected to my identity as a black woman. So um, for me, the intersecting narratives about black male stories through the experience of black women's lives was kind of what was central in my connection with hip hop. Um, I had this conversation with my uncle earlier today and you know, he said, Baba, hip-hop has always been a part of our culture. That music has always been influential here, um, you know, for black Australians, yeah. Indigenous and, you know, other people of African descent who are here. Um, those interconnected um, relationships, they come through our oratory cultures, you know, our traditions in music. That's, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Queen, I had a, uh, a question and it, it might, it's a... It's a it's a big one, I guess, but um, in, in terms of uh, the racialization of hip-hop in Australia, where uh, I guess it's safe to say it's at least perceived as a very uh, middle-class white genre in, in Australia, does that uh, racialization of hip-hop, does that actually uh, affect your artistic output? And, and do you have that in mind when you're, when you're trying to write that single? Uh, not at all, it doesn't, um, it's not what I think about. Um, who I'm going against. I guess when it comes to how I want to, what I want my music to say or who I want to hear it, who I want it to reach, it does have an effect because if I want to be on the same level as 
the hip-hop industry, if you like to call it that, um, here in Australia, I definitely, you know, have tried to fit in, I must say, but um, it doesn't work for us. Is That's the conclusion that I've come to, is that if, you know, us people of colour, black people, people from, you know, diverse backgrounds are trying to fit in um, with what's out there, it's not going to work. Um, we either mobilise and do our own thing or... You know, we ask ourselves a why, why are we doing this? And for me personally, um, after becoming a mother and, um, you know, seeing that, hip, you know, becoming a mother has not stopped me from practising my art, my thing now is about, you know, how I use this art form, um, you know, to, to send out the messages, you know, to put out the songs out there and talk about the times that we're in, the current times, talk about what's important. Um, that will never stop me from doing any of that. And... I'm not trying to change anyone out there. I don't think we need to change what, you know, what is out there. And, and I appreciate all the experiences that I've had. I've been able to tour around the whole country, um, you know, and this big, go to all the hip hop concerts that have come out here, which was very influential um, to me. And I appreciate being a part of that. But yeah, the ultimate conclusion now is the why, you know, why are we doing this? And, you know, if we keep trying to fit in um, with, the masses who, you know, clearly don't accept us, then, you know, I don't think we'll be going anywhere if that answers. Yeah, cheers. Tasman, um, do, do you find that, that the scene um, impacts your, your writing and, and what you put out, or...? Um, well, like, where I'm from, like, starting to write down there didn't really, because that's a town of 2,000 people and it's all young black fellas walking around singing NWA, so... You know, like I didn't, I didn't know the scene until I was like last year when I really started coming up in it and I'd meet someone and then like Nookie would be like, oh, that was such and such, he's a legend. And I'm like, I, I don't know him. Like I just didn't know, I didn't know the scene. He's like, you don't know him? I was like, no, nah, I, I don't know him. Like, sorry. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, nah, like it's always, it's always for me, it's just about how I deliver it. Like, because I know certain people can't listen in a way that if, if it's so like, it's just straight up punch in the face, they're not going to listen, they're always going to hold back on it, not that that matters to me, but I always want to deliver it in a way where it's like, if they hear it, they like, they like the stuff, and like, let me look into this, and then they end up finding out what I'm really saying, and by the time, then they love me too much to hate me, so I <laughs> just, just hope that works. But yeah, it's, it's, never, it's never a thing for me, like it's, it's always, I always think about that when like I see brothers rapping, but when I came up doing my thing with a bunch of brothers, it's just all black fellas, and we don't care what we're saying, you know what I mean? Like, there's, even the white kids are walking around singing our songs in a little phone and that we made when we was 14 years old, so it's never been like that for me, but I can see how it might affect some people. Uh, Carla, we were, we were chatting earlier um, about uh, you, you, the, the scene uh, in Australia compared to the UK when you came up, and uh, I'd be really interested to, to hear your thoughts on what, like that, that comparison between the, the current Australian scene and the, the UK scene. From, from everything people have kind of told me since, since I've been here and the conversations I'm hearing you guys have, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, so I'll, I will unpack the point. It feels like you're in a situation where we were kind of 15 years ago in the sense that we had a scenario where the entire British mainstream just didn't want to hear any black people on the TV or radio do, doing hip-hop, really. And the ones that were allowed on the TV and the radio... Um, so we had a police department, for example, in the UK called Operation Trident. Uh, which was a police department specifically for black-on-black -black violence, because apparently when black people kill each other, it needs its own police department. Even many of the people who were killed, like the boy who was shot in 2011, or man who was shot in 2011 by the police that led to the riots, his mother was, was white. 
presumably there are only police in the black half. Um, but <laughs> the, point, the point I'm making is, is that these musicians, people like the So Solid crew and others who were coming through doing sort of garage, they were able to sort of get to the mainstream because we'd built a completely independent functioning business that was creating actually multi-millionaires in the garage scene, which was one of the reasons it was shut down, because that was an offshoot of Jamaican sound system culture. So Black Britain is in a really strange and sort of unique place in relation to hip hop in that our cousins in the Bronx, so if you're Jamaican or any form of Caribbean, you literally have cousins in the Bronx or in Brooklyn or elsewhere. So we were having this transatlantic conversation, yet the British media decided to make, so for example, Tim Westwood, the, the kind of bastion of UK hip hop, he's a posh boy from Norwich. Um, and that's fine that he loves hip hop, but why he felt the need to kind of take on a fake Bronx accent and all this kind of stuff, I don't know. Um, he was put in charge and he really made it as a, as a colonist, which, which he, he is and was, and it seems like you have a lot of colonists in hip hop in Australia. I find it really interesting when people claim to love an art form, but don't want to engage with the authenticity of that art form. Hip hop comes from the African American ghetto. To be sensitive about discussions about race and claim to be a hip hop head, for me is very fake. So we, but what you have is a lot of people that come in, they steal stuff, and then they stand in the way. And that felt like what people were able to do for a long time in the UK. And then the internet came along and just messed everything up. And all of the colonists are now not that important in the UK anymore because the biggest rappers in the UK, even with the white kids, are young black kids from Tottenham and Hackney and Peckham and elsewhere. You've got people like Stormzy, who people wouldn't say is necessarily political. But when he says, I'm bringing dark skin back for the black kids, in a context of Britain, that is very political. Even the fact that all the biggest rappers in Britain now are Africans as opposed to Caribbeans is a big deal for those who don't know our local politics. When I grew up, I hate to say it, but the Caribbean community, we used to really, we weren't very kind to the African immigrant community in the UK. We made fun of them for being too dark and African. The same self-hatred we had, we took out on that community. Now you have a situation where the two biggest rappers, one's Nigerian, one's Ghanaian. And so in many ways, I wouldn't despair. I think a whole generation of talented Australian hip-hop artists probably missed this technological revolution, but I think for the new generation, I would say, be original, stick to your guns, speak out, do your stuff, and the world will hear you. It might take a little while, but that's, that's what I would learn from that, our journey and even from the American journey. It's not like hip-hop in America had an easy route to the mainstream. These were black people from the ghetto. No one really wanted to hear from them. They were like, put them in a corner, and then they realized it could be successful. So it feels like that journey is still to come, but I'm confident it will come, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to the world hearing what particularly Aboriginal Australia has to tell the world about their situation here, because the world doesn't know, and it should. Yeah. <laughs> Kaya, I guess um, on a on a context of as a black female in Australia, how, how do you have you how have you found the Australian hip hop scene and, and engaging with it? Um, I think the Australian hip hop scene for women sort of sits within a very kind of particular nuanced space. I I like what's happening in um like I would say it's more like spoken word. You know, there's a lot of strong female um, poets, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and South Sea Islander poets. I, I think they are really paving the way for innovation. It's not subscribing to a commercial form of, you know, emulating, you know, traditional kind of hip-hop. And I think engage, seeing that emerge here, um, maybe not so much in the sense of, a, oh, it's hip-hop, but it sits within a broader context of what hip hop culture is about. I think, um, yeah, it's really powerful. I, th I feel 
like hip hop is really about, you know, the third wave of the third, the next generation of, you know, um, you know, black feminism. I see that that kind of context operating in what you see with what is happening with young black women doing hip hop here in Australia. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of an interesting alternative space. It's yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's amazing. Hey, like I think. I've been involved in hip-hop for like 15 years and it's just, the scene changes constantly, like to the fact that you go to gigs and, and there's girls there. You know, like, like you know, 15 years ago, there, there, just, there wasn't, like, there, you know. But, you know, less than, there might be one bored girl with her boyfriend, but now, you know, it's a, it's a different... But I think it's... <laughs> it's also interesting to see how they're using that and taking those platforms to... Um, to enact social conscious, consciousness. So it's not just about, you know, getting up there and, you know, rhyming. Yeah. It's actually the delivery is well thought out. It's, it's a practice of decolonisation and it's community building and it's empowering, reappropriating. I think that's really, really kind of, um, you know, innovative what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess in its, in its, in its uh, essence, hip-hop, is, 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 is absolutely a tool of decolonisation. It can be both, though. Yes. <laughs> because if the wrong people... Sorry, sorry to jump in there, but yeah. what hip-hop has also been is a tool of immense colonisation in the hands of colonisers. The black America still does not own, despite being the richest black population in the world, does not own the means of production and distribution of its culture. And so what does that end up creating? There's always been a materialistic, misogynistic, overly violent element within the culture, because if you live in the ghetto, that's part of being in the ghetto. But when 90% of what gets promoted to the world is that, is that reflective, really? I've been to the Bronx, I've got cousins there. It's not reflective, that's not what people are doing. Um, and it, so it has promoted, really, a global, disproportionate image of what blackness is. And it's only when I travel, I, I was in New Zealand, for example, and a bunch of brothers come up to me, Maori brothers, and was like, yo, what up, my nigga? I was like, First, I'm not American, like, so let's start right there. And I used to say, I'm not going to lie, I never used to say, I used to, I, used to, I used to use that word, but then I really reflected on it. I'm like, I'm Caribbean. In, Carib in the Caribbean, that's still a fucking part of my language. That's still an insult. We don't, when, when someone calls you a nasty nigger in the Caribbean, because we don't even say nigger, we say nigger, right? You're going to have a fight next. So it's very interesting to me that we've, a lot of us have taken on some of these black Americanisms that are not even really black Americanisms, they're white Americanisms projected onto blackness. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Like James Baldwin says, <laughs> James Baldwin says, white America needs its nigger. And hip hop in many ways has provided that globally. And, and when you go to, I was in Korea a few weeks ago. Again, the image of what people think blackness is, is what they're watching on MTV. It's not Shake Hand to Diop or Marcus Garvey or Angela Davis, or, yeah. it's MTV. And so, Hip-hop, I have a love-hate relationship with it because it provided such an identity for me, but then I see the impact it's having on a lot of people's view of themselves and a lot of people's view of our community. And so it's, it's still a contested ground. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's, that's a really good thought. Did you have something you wanted to say there, Kat? Sorry, I'll ask you. Uh, I was just going to pick up on what you said. I think, I think it operates differently in Australia here. I, I, there's definitely a commercial element who... Uh, you know, there is a band of, you know, hip-hop artists who are subscribing to that form of politic. Um, 
but I think it's developing differently. I think, like you said, we are very early days here. We are an early country as well. If you look in our context of colonisation, we're still formulating the, um, the bounds of our, you know, what is our black identity here um, and how do we relate to black culture or blackness. Um, so when we look at how hip-hop is emerging here, I don't think it's emerging. I don't know, Jay, would you say, like, I, I just don't think that it's the emulation of, you know, African-American Negroes. I think that's a different context. Um, I've got some my, cousins here. Well, from yeah, my own experience, um, <laughs> from my own experience, yes, that perception, it did hit, um, you know, how, where I grew up, it did hit my own family members where in order for them to be accepted or to be respected or to be even, they weren't being respected, that's for sure, but um, they had to put on this um, persona, this nigger persona that, yo, without, you know, and you see it a lot. It's the, you know, putting on the fake accent. We've been through that, you know what I mean? And that's, I guess, where I can, you know, hear what you're saying in that. And then um, the broader society, that's how they look. They don't want to look at me as African. African's not cool. Africans are poverty, you're poor, you've got monkeys in your yard. It's just negative as. But if you are American, it's cooler. If you're black American, it's way cooler. And um, that's the experience that I've seen. And it does continue. It's getting better because the more we um, promote the pan-Africanism and connect that back to hip-hop because, you know, like the sister was saying, you know, the hip-hop has a lot of roots in Africa. You know, when we practice our traditions, our music, our celebrations, our mourning, everything, you know, you can, you can take elements of that, how we gather, we cipher, we dance, you know, everything's all a spiritual raising. And I think that's where I connect to it is bringing it back to the spirit, which is, you know, important. Um, and to the soul, and yeah, uh, that's yeah what I could say. Yeah, do, do you think it's always been that way? Because I, I know when uh, Killer Queens came out, you guys, you guys went really hard, and you got, and I, I feel like you, you freaked out. You know, the Sydney hip hop scene I was a lot. I mean, you know, um, yeah, that was a bit of a strange experience how that happened because I was all used to go around going, are these people for real? They why they keep giving us gigs for? You know, we're two black chicks out here, but. That's how we grew up. We grew up around the guys. We were the only chi chi uh, only f women doing what we were doing. We were the only women, um, you know, joining the cipher and freestyling, you know, getting up and, and doing it. I guess maybe because we grew up with, you know, older brothers. But um, confidence, I guess, you know, helped us a lot because we didn't see ourselves as anything different. We were like, yeah, we're hip-hop. And, and an important thing was we weren't seeing any black representation in the scene. And I guess our biggest, um, the biggest thing that gave us the drive to do what we did was the fact that we need to be out there because we can't keep going around and allowing ourselves to be amongst this scene and we're not a part of it, you know, we're not there. So, and that's another thing that probably needs to stop is, or not stop, at least, you know, develop is, you know, putting on these gigs and you see no black faces on the bill, none, you know, it's, it's very offensive, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember uh, Tasman, um, Tasman's father, sorry, and sorry, I always, I've interviewed this guy on the radio and every time I do, I always have to bring up his dad because his dad's YMC, who was, was a, a, a seminal Aboriginal hip hop, rap, yeah, rapper, probably like one of, the, you know, one of the first Australian rappers I ever saw live who blew my mind and I was like, that, that shit's amazing. Um, but I remember back in the day of the, and a lot of um, Australian hip hop heads would remember the stealth forums 
which uh, predated, I think maybe predated Oz Hip Hop forums. But anyway, that, yeah. But people were constantly saying, like, why is too angry? Why, you know, and, 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 he, and he literally made party music. And it was this bizarre thing um, where people kind of perceived a, 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 a dark Aboriginal man as, as on a stage as being angry. Um, so I, I don't know, I kind of felt he's like I was going angry. there. He's still angry, dude. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't changed. I kind of felt like I had a question angry. for you there, Tasman, but I kind of kind of just talked it out myself. No, nah, it's probably because I saw him, like, I guess on stage, he would come out, you know, no shoes and shorts and paint it up. And I think that just shocked him, just to see someone on stage painted up like that and screaming, well, not really screaming at him, but saying things that they're not used to hearing. <laughs> Until he got with the band and then that was when it started to become screaming and when he joined The Witness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how, how, how did growing up, growing up in hip-hop, like hip-hop literally being part of your, your childhood right through, how, how was that? It was, it was just normal to me. Like I didn't think nothing of it, you know what I mean? Like when I was eight years old, I was getting on stage at Yubbin with Dad. And, but like my first performance was lip singing Michael Jackson, Billie Jean and moonwalking at a talent show. And then to go from that to then like, yeah, like, thank you. I can still do it, by the way. <laughs> Now, it was good, though, like, I, if I didn't have it, obviously, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, and, you know, we, I, we moved to Sydney from Bowerville purely because of the fact that Dad was doing music down here, and then when I was 14, which was six years ago, I'm 20 years old now, I'm not an old fella yet, I'm a pretty young dude, <laughs> I just want to let people know. <laughs> no, but, um, yeah, like, we moved home at 14, that's when Dad really stopped because I had my little sister. And, you know, I took her home to raise her England Bangi lands and be more connected to the country and more connected to home. And then that's when I really started to take off on my side of it. So when Dad stopped, I was always involved in it, but when Dad stopped, I really took it serious, you know what I mean? Like, before that, it was just something normal. And then I really realised what I can do with it and how powerful it can be and look back on what Dad did. And when I started to come to Sydney and I'd meet people and they'd be like, oh, your dad's wild, blah, blah, blah. Like, I didn't realise half the stuff he'd done, you know what I mean? I just thought it was being a normal dad, but obviously not. <laughs> But yeah, it was it was a good it was a good thing, and I'm you know I'm glad I was born and raised in hip hop. Yeah, Matt, and I'm, I think it's I think it's a really exciting time in in Aboriginal hip hop, where I think inter, in, in Australian hip hop too, uh, like internationally now, you see like there's been generations of hip hop, and generationally people get better and better. Like that's just the natural progress, and I think you know this is this is the first time we're we're starting to see see this that happen in this country because. It, it's still relatively, you know, a, a young art form. Um, Omer, do I have time to open it up for questions? What do you reckon? Uh, <laughs> cool. So, anyone got any uh, questions out there? You're going to have to yell it out because I'm not going to run a mic around either. <laughs> oh, oh. I'm a huge Iggy Azalea fan. <laughs> I hope no one took that seriously. <laughs> I heard some people like sigh like that was really actually serious. I'm offended. I'm offended that you thought that was, that was anything but an absolute piss take. Um, well, aside from being fake and crass and a thief, I mean, she's crap <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But 
Again, it's about inauthenticity. I, I always wonder why. I mean, if I was a, a white hip hop fan, right? I'd still be offended. I'd be like, why do people think I'm gonna, I'm gonna identify with this crass, fake, fake black Southern stereotype in a white Australian clothes? It's just, it's really confusing, but it comes back to the point I was saying about hip hop being a colonial force. This fake, niggerized image, which is really in white America's imagination, it's not a real human being, comes to America and this woman identifies with it and then calls herself a runaway slave master. What have we come to that someone can get away with saying that and hip hop and not get tucked in? I don't know. It's confusing to me. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, but there's a lot of people I'm not a fan of, but she's definitely one of them. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, I just, to add to that, I don't think um, we make enough noise. We need to make more noise, you know. If we're seeing something that is disrespectful, I think, you know, as, a f as fans of hip-hop who, you know, follow the hip-hop that we know best, I think we need to speak up more and make noise and just not allow it to keep... It, it, let it continue. There's money behind that. That's money, but, um, yeah, we've got to make noise and say something, you know. Everyone. Yeah. Um, the, the, the thing is, I think for anyone who grew up on Roots Reggae, as I did as well, which is it's actually, sorry, all my hip-hop heads, Roots Reggae is probably still my favourite music. Um, I just did a documentary for BBC4 about, about Roots Reggae. Um, the problem is, if you grew up on Roots Reggae, which is easily the most radical form of black diasporic music, as great as much of the music that came out of America was, none of it was talking about reclaiming an African identity. At most, it was fighting against racism. That was as far as it got, and that's not a disrespect to African-American music. People have to rec realize in the Caribbean, we had a fundamentally different experience. Slavery ended, we chopped up a couple of slave masters' heads, and they left. And, and they basically lived separately ever since. We didn't have Ku Klux Klan and a century of terrorism. So we didn't have, in many ways, the same uh, burden of that interaction. Um, and, and this is how Marcus Garvey or Roots Reggae could emerge from an island like Jamaica. Um, and I think you're right, hip-hop has always had that dichotomy, even in the very beginning. But that's the reality of the African-American ghetto experience. And then we eventually got that with Dancehall in Jamaica. And it's not a coincidence that Dancehall came as we got a right-wing government in the 1980 election for people who look at the history of Jamaica. But I think black America currently, and unless America fundamentally changes as a society or collapses, will never own fully the means of production and distribution of its culture because these are the sense of humans that were owned. And that's why it seems normal that their culture should not be owned um, and by them. So it is a constant, constant battle and constant fight. But I think we've, as people who love the culture, got to choose what we support and what we don't support and try and make it a reality that at least artists who are saying something different have a bit of a platform and a bit of a voice. Great. Thanks. Uh, we've got no more time for questions, guys. But